Have you had a cross encounter? We are looking over these next few weeks at individuals that encountered the cross of Christ, literally encountered that very cross that Jesus died on and how their life was changed. Last week we talked about this Roman centurion, the man that oversaw the execution of Jesus. We don't know much about his background or even what happened after this, but on the, the day that Jesus was executed, he observed how Christ responded, how he overflowed with grace to the people around him. They saw how the how the, how the people hurled insults, and, and yet Jesus still gave grace to them. He witnessed how Jesus gave his spirit up to God and, and shouted, it is finished, and then laid his head down almost as if he was going to sleep. And he came to this conclusion that surely this was the Son of God. Well, today we're going to look at another man, a man who was kind of reluctantly pulled into the Easter story. It happened on a journey to the cross. When Jesus was sentenced to death by Pilate, he walked from the praetorium all the way to the hill called Golgotha. And on that journey along there, which is called the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, um, you'd find today a lot of little shops and vendors, stone buildings on either side, an ascending kind of staircase leading up to the hill. And it's, it was much like that back in Jesus' day. It, it was a hub of activity, a lot of merchandising going on in that area. And this man happened to be in town doing some business when he happened to be at the right place or maybe the wrong place at the wrong time for him. But in that moment where he actually comes along beside Jesus and picks up the cross and carries it for him, he gives us a vivid picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Matt shared that our mission as a church is to help more people more often say yes to God because in, in, in many people's minds, they may think that our goal is to create churchgoers. But you know as well as I know that going to church uh, doesn't necessarily make you a follower of Jesus. You might think that our mission as a church is to help create more Christians, but honestly, because that name has been so watered down in our culture because most people claim to be Christian, but they don't act like Jesus or talk like Jesus, that surely that's not what he was asking for. Now, what Jesus wants us to do is, is, is create followers of Christ, a person who hears his voice and then does what he says. In fact, Jesus said, here's how you can identify my sheep. They hear my voice, and they follow me. And so our desire is to help you to do that, to help you become a follower of Jesus, really to give your life for that purpose, because Jesus gave his life for you. Jesus died in your place so that you could then give your life for him. And that's our desire today as we go through this message. Now, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and I'm going to ask you to pray a dangerous prayer. A prayer not only to understand what God would say through his word, but also to have the courage to do a very difficult thing, to pick up your cross and follow him. So would you pray that with me, Father? We want to know in a greater way what happened on that cross and, and what you did for us. But more importantly, Lord, we want to have the courage to obey you, the courage to do what you call us to do. And so we ask for your spirit to speak to us today, Lord, as we open your word that we can hear and obey. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this story is actually found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but I'm going to read Mark's version because there's some extra details in here that you need to hear about. In chapter 15, verse 20, it says, And when they had mocked him, they took, the purple took off the purple robe and put his clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, 
Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, I always thought that was Cyrene until this week when I looked up in a Bible dictionary. I said, I've been mispronouncing it my whole life. It's Cyrene. And Simon was from there. Let's look at this man. We don't know a whole lot about him, but we know he's from this place, which is really modern-day Libya. Julie and I went to a movie the other night called The... Uh, the Secret Soldiers of Benghazi, 13 hours. And Benghazi is in Libya. So that region where that took place is Cyrene. And that's where Simon was from. Now we find the name of that country showing up a number of other times. On the day of Pentecost, there were people gathered from that region. We find out in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 1, that there's a man named Lucius who's from Cyrene. And so we, we know that there is a contingent of Jews from this area. It's about a 900-mile journey from Cyrene to Jerusalem. It takes several weeks. But it's very likely that Simon was in Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, some people speculate that because he's from northern Africa, he was a black man. And we don't know that. The Bible, maybe fortunately, is kind of color neutral. It doesn't tell us the skin color of people because really that isn't that significant to God? We're all loved by the Lord. Some people may say this was a big, burly, strong man to carry the cross, but I wouldn't say that the Bible says that either because I know a lot of wiry farmers and ranchers who are very strong. And we might even think, that, well, Jesus was overburdened by the cross and needed help carrying it, but honestly, none of the Gospels say that Jesus was crushed by the weight of the cross. Now, understandably, he, he likely was, because Jesus had left the dinner the night before with his disciples. He was taken before the religious leaders, and they drilled him for a long time about who he was. And then he gets taken over to Pilate, and Pilate grills him with some more questions. And then he's taken before the soldiers who whip him, scourge him, which if you knew what that is, that's when your body gets ripped by these leather straps and pieces of bone and pottery. So Jesus is, is hungry. He's been up all night, probably hasn't had anything to eat or maybe even to drink. His body is weary. He's carrying the cross. And so it makes sense to think that Jesus was probably overcome by its weight. In Roman times, typically the criminal would carry the cross beam only, that the vertical post was already at the site. But even that itself would weigh a couple hundred pounds. So here is Simon coming. He's, he's come from the country into town he may be running errands for the family, has his two boys with him, and then the soldiers seize him and force him to carry the cross. Now think about that. If you were Simon, how would that feel? You know, he, for one, he must be bothered and annoyed by it because he was on a mission. He had things to do. This was not on his agenda for the day. Uh, carry the cross of Jesus, get groceries. You know, that wasn't on his plan. So he's a little annoyed by it, most likely. He's probably offended by it, that he's connected with the criminal. And I'm actually going to carry the criminal's death instrument for him? I don't like this. I don't like what, how this looks. I don't like the association there. He might even be worried because he has two boys with him. Now, we don't know if they're little boys or bigger boys, but they're going to have to follow their dad to where he's carrying this cross. So think about this. I don't know if that was a regular trip for parents with their kids to go to an execution spot and let them look around. But, but dad's carrying the cross to the top of this hill. There may already be people nailed to crosses, and their sons are horrified by what they see. And so probably for the next several weeks, dad, what, what's going on up there? 
What were they doing to those people? What, what did they do that was so bad that they would get nailed to a cross like that? And very likely there's conversations taking place for, for weeks with Simon and his kids. Now, the two kids are mentioned, Rufus and Alexander. It seems rather strange that they would be named. We don't even know the name of the child that Jesus put in front of his disciples and said, you ought to become like this one. But here, these two kind of random kids are, are named as if it's important that people know their name. Now, it's believed by, by scholars that Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark from Rome to the Christians in Rome. There are a lot of different factors that contribute to that conclusion. But it's interesting when Paul writes to the church in Rome that at the very end of that book, chapter 16, whole list of different greetings, there's found this greeting. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who's been a mother to me too. Many believe that the reason Mark mentions the child by name is because he's the Rufus, that's the Christian in Rome, and his mother. She's not just a Christian. She is showing hospitality to this missionary named Paul. Now, understand this, that it's very possible that what took place that day along that path impacted that family to such a degree that not only dad, but these children came to know the Lord, the wife came to know the Lord. And I just have to conclude that when a father gets out of the crowd and picks up a cross and follows Jesus, that it sends a ripple all through the rest of the family. Amen. And I just want to challenge you men in this place, that when you get out from being this passive Christian, this spectator that says, I'll come to church, I'll watch what happens, when you step out of there and say, I'm going to get in the action, I'm going to be a leader, I'm going to show what it means to follow Jesus, your family will follow. I can almost guarantee it. Because children and spouses are looking for men willing to get out of the crowd and off the bleachers and onto the field of action. Now, what does it mean then to pick up your cross? What does, what does that require of us? Well, Jesus gives some indication of that as he, as he says in that passage. Um, or actually says in this following passage in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 25. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? This isn't a real popular teaching. You want to follow Jesus, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. We tend to focus more on the positive side, the things that we get to do, the things that don't cost much. In fact, we say salvation is free. All you have to do is open your life to Jesus and invite him into your heart. It's all, all, all sweet. But the reality is, while it's free, it costs everything you have. Now, that seems like an oxymoron. Which is it, Pastor? Is it free or does it cost everything I have? And I said, yes, yes, both. And here's a great, a great example of it. You can get married to today for relatively, um, almost for free. All, all you need is a, a couple hundred dollars to pay for the, the license. But other than that, that's all that's really required. I know people will say, like, you know, Pastor, we've got to save up thousands of dollars, and so we're going to move in together, save up our money, and we're going to have a wedding, you know, a year and a half down the road. And I say, come on, if you love her, put the ring on the finger, pay a couple hundred bucks, go get married, make it legit. Because all that other stuff, 
That, that's just dressing on the marriage. So the tuxes and the music and the cakes and all that extra stuff that costs thousands and thousands of dollars, that's now what makes the marriage. The marriage is made by the commitment the two make. So marriage can cost you maybe a couple hundred dollars, almost free. So let's say marriage is free. But if you're married, you know that it costs everything you have. <laughs> right? It costs everything you have. It, it's way beyond what you thought it cost you in your time, in your money, in your energy, in the devotion, in your emotional reserves. It costs everything. But you know that you can't have it any other way. Because you cannot have a marriage without two people giving 100% to their relationship. That's how it works. It's free, but costs everything that you have. That's the way God designed our relationship with him. Now, Jesus goes on a little bit later, same book of the Bible, in chapter 14. Now, when Jesus describes what it means to be a disciple, he says it even stronger. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Wow, what does he mean? Hate. Hate people you should really love. I mean, isn't Jesus all about love? And my mother and father, my wife, my kids, my brothers and sisters. Doesn't this contradict all the other teachings that Jesus gives? We know that the greatest thing is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Whitney Houston was so wrong, the greatest love is not loving yourself, it's loving God. Then, second, you love everybody else. But here's what happens. It is so easy to to let the love for everybody else start to creep in and, and replace God in our life. And it could be your mother and father. It could be your spouse. It could be your kids. It can be your grandkids. And I've watched people over the years Um, and how this happens. Good Christian people. All of a sudden, this single gal or single guy finds that person, Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright, and their whole life now revolves around this person. They constantly think about them, talk about them, um, arrange their schedule around that person. I've known couples that says, man, we've longed so, so much to have this little baby. So they have a baby, and pretty soon, their whole life changes. And you know, the center of the world is this little baby. And we're in the stage as, as grandparents now. We have four grandkids. Three of them have lived more than 1,000 miles away from us our whole life. So we get to see them once or twice a year. Now we have a grandson that lives in our town that we get to see most weekends at church that we get to have in our house one or two days a week. And you know what? I, I didn't know I could love a little grandchild this way. I mean, he just grabbed my heart. I love watching him smile and laugh and, and talk and taste different foods and, and snuggle and, and all these different things. And, and when he leaves our house, I, I start thinking about, man, I miss the guy already. And sometimes the Holy Spirit will whisper to me, be careful. That you do not let any person, not even your grandson, to creep into that spot that's reserved for the Lord. Because when you do, it's idolatry. And I've known people even in this church, leaders who out of love for family have allowed kids or grandkids to replace God. I've known people who say, we don't come to worship on Sunday anymore because our kids have sports events. Really? I'd hate to go and talk to God about that. We can't worship my creator because of the ball game. It's very easy to, under the guise of I love my family, to let that. And Jesus is so strong. He says, if that's the case, you have to hate anything that would come between you and your God. Love God so much you will not even let a single person 
not your spouse, not your kids, not your parents, not your grandkids take the place that belongs rightfully to God. So how do, how do we do that? How do we pick up the cross? Well, first of all, Jesus says that we choose Christ over self. I choose Christ over me. He says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Helping more people more often say yes to God, helping more people more often say no to self. <laughs> because we've got to put God first. And it's not the requirement for salvation, but it definitely is the result of salvation. And the reason I say that is because I don't know how to love God. I don't know how to put my life around God until the Holy Spirit's been put in me to help me see that and understand that. So, but once God comes into our lives, God starts to reorient everything else. And so he becomes the dominant driving force in our life. Now, I find in church there's basically three different kinds of people who regularly come to church. There are those who say Jesus is important. People who say, man, definitely Jesus is important to me. I'm not shy to say that. He's important to me, and there are many things that are important to me, and God is one of them. And there's many of you who would say that. There are some of you in this room that would take it to another level. You would say, not only is God important, he's priority in my life. He's number one priority in my life. A lot of things are important in my life, family, work, all that, but God's number one. One. And so you start your week with God. And you give him the first 10% of what God gives you. You tithe. You wake up in the morning, you even spend some quiet moments with God because, because he's first. And so you live your life that way. And for, for many of you, you feel like that's the way God would want it to be, but I'll say, you're not there yet. There's another level. It's where Jesus is not just important. Jesus is not just priority. Jesus is everything. It's the person that says, Jesus is like oxygen to me. Jesus is like water to me. I can't live without him. He's the center. He's the energizing force in my life. Everything in my life is affected by my relationship with Jesus, my marriage, my my parenting, my job, my choices of entertainment, how I manage finances. Everything that I do is filtered through God being at the center of my life. That's how God wants us to live. He wants us to keep him at the middle. Kyle Eidelman wrote a book called Not a Fan. And in that book, he says that a fan is someone who's an enthusiastic follower. When things are going smoothly, they're on board. When things get tough, they jump ship. He says there are a lot of fans in churches. Not as many followers. And I think about that when I, when I think of what's big in our state, the Denver Broncos. I watch the colors, and, and they start to build up in the fall. I mean, very few wear orange through the year, unless you're a follower of the Broncos. Fans put them on during the season. Fans wear their jersey on game day. Fans, fans might even wear it the day after they win, but not the day after they lose. <laughs> Followers track the NFL combine and want to know who they're after and what holes they need to fill. And they know the names of all the players and the positions. Fans say, I don't care about all that. I just want to know who's quarterback. I want to know the big names. That's all I care about. Followers are engaged all year long. Fans say, I'll wait till September or maybe October when things die down, and then I'll really get into football. And I just see it here. You watch how many jerseys are worn in September compared to December. The fans show up. Super Bowl, Broncos and Super Bowl. There's, there's orange everywhere. Because the fans are there. I think church is a lot like that. A lot of people come and see, yay God on Sunday. I'm here to worship, here to raise my voice. 
But there's very little conversation about God on Monday. Very little time devoted to God to open up his word and pray. Very little desire to impact other people's lives for God Monday through Saturday. But man, Sunday, we are there. We've got our pom-poms. We've got our uniform on. We even have our Bibles. I mean, we are there. And yes, we are fans of Jesus. Enthusiastic admirers. But is that what he called us to be? Or did he call us to be followers? There was a pastor I was meeting with this week. And uh, the pastor asked his church some questions. He asked some people, um, do you know any Christians? And of course, they just ripped off a bunch of names. They knew a lot of Christians. Then he, then he turned the tables a little bit and said, can you name for me someone that you know who is a disciple? And he says they were stumped. They couldn't think of a person that was a disciple of Jesus because it's like, wow, Christians, th- those are everywhere, but the, the disciple, someone who takes Jesus seriously, do I know someone like that? I don't know. And I'm just going to ask you, are you a Christian or are you a disciple? Is it clear that you're more than a fan, that you truly are a follower, that you're seeking to hear his voice, seeking to be obedient to that voice? That's what we were called to be. Deny ourselves. Here's something else he says, that we should consider my life as good as dead. He says, pick up your cross. Now think about it. I hear people say, you know, my cross is my physical limitation. Or my cross is my job. It's a very tough job. I, that's the cross I have to bear. Someone says, yeah, my spouse is my cross. Uh, my kids are my cross. Or, you know, my neighbor is my cross. And, you know, honestly, I don't think that's what Jesus meant by this. I think Jesus is being very simple. What's a cross used for? Execution. Pick it up because one day you're going to die. So pick it up. Carry it. Are you willing to do that for me? You need to consider your life as good as dead. I mean, Jesus said it. If you save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you will find it. And I think we've done people wrong by always saying, you need to just add Jesus to your life. You know, you need to make a place for Jesus in your life. Um, Open yourself and bring Jesus in. And and that's good. That's true. But the problem is we don't want to give up anything. It's kind of like packing a busy schedule with one more thing to do. But but Jesus says, you you need to kind of clean the slate. You need to lose your life. You need to let go of it. Last week, I told you about a guy named Saul. Saul was a very religious man. He was out to arrest believers. And on the, on the trip to Damascus, he was, he was uh, stopped by this blinding light. And it was Jesus speaking to him. Jesus said, I've got a whole new future for you. You're going to be a spokesperson for me. You're going to go among the Gentiles and preach the gospel. And... Uh, and God made a, a guy named Ananias come to Saul and baptize him, and something like scales that says fell from his eyes, he began to see. And Jesus said, from now on, you will not be Saul anymore. You will be called Paul. Now, why did Jesus do that? Because the old Saul was dead. There's a new guy in town. And so when Paul describes the change in his life, he writes to a church in, the, in these words, Galatians chapter 2. I have been, get this, crucified with Christ. And I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen to those words. I've been crucified. I no longer live. 
It's not about me anymore. It's not Jesus plus me. It's Jesus in place of me. I don't live. This body, it's like the guy that used to live here, he was buried. He was crucified. He's dead. Jesus has taken up this body. It's now his home. He's working through me. The life I now live, it's now Jesus living in and through me. That's why in Scripture, there's this picture in baptism that those who are crucified then get buried. Romans chapter 6, starting with verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Crucified people get buried. That's the whole picture there. I know there's a lot of mystery over what happens when someone's baptized. I can simply say this. At the most basic level, it's someone saying, my old self is dead and no longer live. That's why we say bye. You know what? We can make it even better by saying we're going to give you a new name too, but that's up to you and your family to do that thing. Um, but they're raised well. I, I read a story about this guy named Joey who was, who was a drug dealer in New York. And he wandered into a church one Sunday night, sat in the back, was intrigued by the pastor's sermon. He decided to come back the next week and the next week and then the next week. And finally, he talked to the pastor and said, I'm, I'm getting it. And I like what you're saying, and I need that. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be baptized. And so they set up a baptism for the following Sunday night. He sent out invitations to his group of friends, which were churchgoers. It was an invitation to his burial. And when they came for that night, Joey spoke to the audience, and he said, some of you know me. You know the streets I used to walk. You know the deals I used to cut. You know you knew the lies I used to tell. That Joey is dying tonight, and there's going to be a new Joey in town. And that's what's intended in your baptism. As Matt said, if today's the day you want to say, I'm ready for a new, a new me, or I'm ready for a Jesus in me, then we are going to actually hang around service today and celebrate your baptism because we want you to have that experience. Jesus didn't come to touch up our lives. He didn't come to tweak some bad habits. He came to transform us. And the transformation is so radical, it requires us to die, to bring what he wants new. There's one other thing Jesus says that's important to know. It's that not only do we pick up our cross and deny ourselves, but we must follow him daily. And you need to remember that because we have an enemy called Satan who never takes a break. He doesn't honor the Sabbath. He's busy 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's why we need to continually follow Jesus, not just on Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all through the week. That's why we're told in Scripture, don't forsake coming together as the body because you need to encourage one another. I don't know about you, but it doesn't work for me to come to church once or twice a month. I need to be there every week. The trend today is people come to church about 1.3 or 1.7 times a month. I I don't know how you can walk with Jesus steadily with that. I I need to have fellowship during the week with different people, with the small group and with the staff and prayer times. I need that to stay on track spiritually because it's so hard. And when Jesus is, uh, is working through you, all of a sudden it shows up all through your life. You wake up in the morning and, and, and you talk to him. And when you go to work, you find that I'm not going to treat people on the road like they're treating me. You find that you're making sacrifices of time and money. You're willing to give up expensive coffee to help someone in need. 
You're willing to rearrange your schedule. You're willing to volunteer at your church to help in a ministry that helps other people. Dying to Christ daily looks like that. It's choosing to be a servant instead of the boss. And when you do that, you start to lose things. You might lose friends. You might, you might lose some entertainment. You might lose some music. You might lose some um, habits of alcohol and smoking. You might lose some habits in your life. You might lose a reputation that you used to have. You might lose your job. And you might even lose your life. Now, we don't think about that in our culture because that doesn't seem to be a risk. But it is all over the world where if you become a Christian, you may risk your life. My wife, Julie, is going to go on a mission trip this summer for about eight weeks, going to uh, an area of the, of the world that's really the highest population of, of Muslims in the world. And there are some that are very militant. And so part of her application process was to sign a document that's called, and this is serious, this isn't a joke, Hostage Policy and Final Arrangements. And in that document, it says, we're all aware of the occasional terrorist acts that have involved Americans in other countries. Generally, our people are located in places where terrorist activity is minimal. However, we feel it is our responsibility to put certain processes in place to deal with the possibility of such an occurrence. They say that if someone is kidnapped by terrorists, they will not negotiate with them. They'll use every means possible through our government, through prayer, and through conversation to work toward their release. But if that person dies at the hands of terrorists, you actually have to mark boxes to say, what do you want done with your body? And it was kind of jarring a little bit for my wife and I to talk through, like, okay, this is a real possibility, and to sign and have it notarized. And you need to know that there are believers all over the world that live in places where this is everyday reality. That if you go public, that you follow Jesus Christ, it's possible that in the middle of the night, some men could come at your door, bust it open, and slit your throat. I just want to tell you, if you were, you were given the opportunity today to come forward to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, and we said, today, if you do that, we have documents up here. It's a policy that just warns you that if you sign this paper, if you accept Jesus, it's possible that someday someone will kill you for being a Christian. How eager would you be to come forward? I just think that so much in our lives, we don't take seriously the fact that Jesus says, pick up the cross, be ready to die for me. And I'm not going to have you sign that form, but what we did do is put a, a, a little card in your hands when you came in. If you didn't get one, you can pick one on your way out. Uh, but this is for you to keep and stick in your Bible, but it's called a quit claim deed. Now, in... In legal terms, there's a more complicated deed like this where someone will sign it to turn over property to someone else, transfer all the titles to someone else. And I wonder for many of us if when you accepted Jesus, you understood that you needed to relinquish everything to him. And I want you to pray about this and say, again, if you're a believer, maybe this is a day to affirm, to say, Jesus, I really get it. And I release all rights all desires, all goals, wealth, possessions, comfort, security, all my emotional baggage, everything I give to you, it's yours. It's yours because I'm yours. You gave your life for me so I could give my life back to you.